Lacrosse, Summer, 1926. William Coffey, a middle-aged successful businessman, is in town tending to one of his many commercial ventures. During his stay, he meets Hattie Mae Hales, and the two begin a whirlwind romance. A romance only one of them will survive. In the ensuing months, William and Hattie would embark on a relationship of secrecy and deception which would tear families apart and become headline news throughout the nation, culminating in a gruesome scene seemingly straight out of a horror movie and would ultimately end with the revelation that one person who everybody thought they knew, nobody really knew at all. Welcome to Badger Bazaar. A murder investigation would lead police to the farmhouse of Ed Gein. Mass murder at Frank Lloyd Wright's Spring Green Estate, Taliesin. Now authorities believe the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, for tuning in to this episode 33 of Badger Bazaar. I'm your host, Scott Whitman, along with me, everybody's little ray of sunshine, your other host, Mickey Sanders. Jesus, I think I, I mean, I just you threw up in my mouth. You don't want to be a ray mouth. of sunshine, man? I, I, I just threw up in my mouth a little. Sitting on the other side of that table there. It's all sunny in here all of a sudden. I see myself at, uh, that way, but I don't know that the rest of the world does. at night. That's the overhead lights outside, I think. It's been a little bit. Since our last episode, we're a little bit late from our, what, three-ish week uh, intervals here. Just a, a few days later since our last episode on Slenderman, which the reaction from that was interesting. We will have at least one follow-up episode with that coming up in the future. So we are looking forward to that. One of the things I was able to do in the limited amount of downtime I've had in the last couple of weeks. Take a couple naps. I never get a chance to take naps. Oh, Not even great. power naps. Those are, you have three toddlers around the house, dude. There ain't much napping. I don't even on. need naps like you, and I take them all the time. I was able to watch what we talked about a few episodes back, and that's the documentary on Ed Gein called Psycho, The Lost Tapes of Ed Gein on MGM+. Plus. The claim to fame for this documentary was the fact that this is now where we are able to hear Ed Gein speak, because there were some... Uh, the interviews that were done of him after he was arrested in 1957 were recorded, obviously. But they, for a long time, what, 60 years or so, were lost. And they were found finally. I guess the judge that interviewed him just had him in his office for a long time and just kept him in his office. That's really where, where this, they were? Like, that's where they were. And then his... Like after, he forgot about him? After he died, his family put him in a, a like a safety deposit box. And then 
somebody in the family gave them to i don't know if the producer of this documentary but some somebody in the family said oh yeah let's we make have some money on we that. have these tapes and let's uh let's try to get them out to the world so somehow. did he forget that he had them or just not no think i doubt he forgot I he just, just didn't just, do anything with them he just didn't do anything with them wow yeah. no kidding I'm sure so i want to talk about that a little bit the, the review here this i'm going to read a little something from the independent which so again it's called psycho the lost tapes of ed gein allows viewers to hear the murderer's voice for the first time it says quote gein was 51 years old when in 1957 he was revealed to have murdered two women and robbed multiple graves. Most notoriously, he collected and lived amongst body parts. His case is a regular subject in true crime media where his crimes and their echoes on popular culture have long been examined. But throughout the years, one person never spoke. Gein himself. For all of the macabre fascination Gein exercised on true crime followers, he remained a somewhat abstract figure, more boogeyman than person. A new documentary series, Psycho, The Lost Tapes of Ed Gein, attempts to change that. The show centers on newly unearthed and never-before-heard interview tapes of Gein conducted by the local law enforcement following his arrest. And I, I, I will say, like, well, very few people alive have ever heard Ed Gein speak, right? I mean, obviously, there's people alive today that, that knew him. Mr. Tim, our science teacher, did, because he was babysit for by him. That's frightening to think about yeah. now, I imagine. Well, Mr. Tim was a little odd, so yeah. that does explain a lot. So, but for the most part, unless unless you knew him, everybody alive hadn't heard him speak because he never spoke on camera or anything that anybody saw. And I will say, he sounds exactly like you think Ed Gein would sound. You know, this Real little... monotone and low-key. just and... kind of mealy-mouthed little... Right. little man not real loud you know right? no no just perfect english though i mean just articulate and well-spoken like like a like shakespeare like an ivy league graduate right buddy. or yeah. or the opposite like a hick with three or four teeth probably but you know you know they they interview him and they're they talk to him and they're asking him questions and he's remembering a lot um, well, those guys remember that stuff well but they use a term which i really like and i haven't i haven't heard this term before but you know if you think about it it's pretty common when you turn to talk about this stuff it's malingering amnesia, right? So they they re- be a good band, very man. very selective memory, right? They remember lots of stuff, but then you know they ask him, "What did you do?" And he's like, "Well, you know, whatever they say I did, that's probably what I did." You know, they never really want to cop to the full accountability of the what stuff, they did. The stuff that gets them off, they remember vividly. Yeah, but they're not going to admit anything to that might incriminate them even more. Yeah, you know, it's just they—they they all do this. Gein, uh, Bundy did, did this. Dahmer, yes, Gacy. They all kind of had this. Just this forget certain things, even selective, though they remember it vividly. Right, selective memory. Right. To you know, they talk about a lot of stuff. But even the they know the really oh. kind of heinous things. Of, Why did you do these things? Oh, I don't know. Mind is a little hazy. Right, but you know, but you I was in an altered state. When certain questions are asked, though, they light up. When it comes to the morbidity of it, sure, the part yeah. that they really get off on, you you can see that their expression even changes. So, you know, they're remembering more than they're admitting to. Right, and you never quite get the information that you want from these guys. If so, it's even the truth, what they are telling you, you know. And then this this goes on to say, "quote There is an underlying promise to the unearthing of the Gein tapes. If we are to hear from the man himself, then surely we might be able to get an explanation for his behavior." But when Ted Bundy was sentenced to death in 1984. He described himself shortly afterwards as tired, sad, and both fascinated with and angry at myself, as if he could not entirely parse his own actions. A similar feeling emerges in Psycho, the lost tapes of Ed Gein. Gein seems bewildered by his own crimes. 
If there is an explanation for why he acted the way he did, he does not seem to possess it. So again, you know, we study these guys all the time. We talk to these guys all the time, kind of what they do in Mindhunter. You know, they're trying to talk uh, to all, all these, all these serial killers, and they just don't get quite all Well, they know the how to play the game. That's they how they've need. gotten away with what they were doing for so long. But like you said, he's kind of mealy-mouthed anyway, so oh, yeah. he's going to sound, maybe even sound remorseful, but that's just the way he talks, like Eeyore. Oh, hi, Pooh. I'm sad right. today, right? Just, just this notion of, you know, like, whatever, however they found her, that must be what I did to her. Right. You know, like I don't know. I was a just victim, a martyr almost, kind of right? in a hazy state. I don't really remember everything. My mind was kind of altered then. Right. You know, you can talk about everything up to then, and then you're like, oh, I kind of blacked out. Right. So even these guys like who, Sammy Sosa. Who, are, <laughs> who are sick as can be only go so far in terms of what they cop to. You know, but in terms of the of the documentary itself, it's four parts, and they they're in Plainfield. They go to all the sites. They go to his grave. They go to his house. You know where we were, Mick, and you know yeah. they go to the to the uh, and they talk about why there's no gravestone. So all that is is interesting. That's all in the first episode, and then the rest of the episodes mainly are are really about the influence that Gein had on pop culture, about how he was kind of the influence of Psycho, the book and the movie. Oh, the last three episodes are Pretty much, kind of you know, how he was the, the, uh, the influence of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, Buffalo Bill and Silence of the Lambs, and then they, they even go into like the, the Rob Zombie movies, like House of a Thousand oh, right. Corpses and things. So, I mean, obviously Gein is still... <laughs> Still very influential today. Well, in the grave, the grave digger part is part right, of it, right? Yeah. So interesting, interesting show. Is 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 it the most exciting uh, documentary I've ever seen? No. Would you say you learned anything you didn't already have some idea about? Learn anything? No. I mean, it was again his voice is exactly what you'd think it'd be, and there are some images in there that I hadn't seen, like crime scene images, like pretty oh, graphic. Yeah. Crime, I don't even know what you're talking about. I got the willies. I'll images. Up yeah, those are, those are, there's photos in there that I hadn't seen before. And those, there's crime scene photos of, of the Gein house all over the place. I mean, you can see oh, yeah. those photos. But these Almost particular like Jack ones. Jack the Ripper photos are that, they're that frequent. I haven't seen, you know, the the actual bodies and parts um, laying around his, his house like that. So um, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's not the most riveting thing you're ever going to watch. You may not learn anything uh, new. But is it worth it? I thought it was worth it. So if you have MGM Plus, and even if you don't, I don't. You know, but you, and I spent the five bucks to, to to check it out. So, but even like the Dahmer series that was technically fictional, but based on even that, just kind of reminds you of what, what went on. Sure, and you know, I think what a creepy time in our history of the state and the country. So, I mean, if nothing else, just I mean, if you're a little twisted like we are, just to relive it is I don't even know the right word for it because I don't want to make it sound like it's magical or anything. I think what I think what the the Patreon will allow us to do as well is I think outside of the podcast here, you know, when when I talk to people, the the questions I get asked the most, other than are when are you going to cover? Are you as handsome as you sound? That too, yes. Uh, you know, it's either when are you going to cover this subject, you know, so-and-so subject, or have you seen this? You know, yeah. have you checked out this documentary? That's constant. It's right. almost daily. Right. So I think the Patreon, what we'll do, what that'll give us a space for is to talk about these things more in depth. Because there's so many documentaries and there's so many that influence opinion about this stuff. I mean, look at the impact that something like Making a Murderer had. Oh, yeah. People form their opinions of that case based on the documentary. Well, and how many people in the state really would have known about that case that as knowledgeable as they are 
it would have right outside gone. of Wisconsin. I mean, right. people, even people even in Wisconsin, I, that thing put a whole new face to it on the you know put it on the map essentially. And unfortunately, so really, I mean, yeah, it was in a wrong was, direction. Probably. It was not um, not a factual documentary. So, but but again, I think that Patreon is going to give us a space where we'll be able to talk about those things in more detail uh, because people are interested in it and they're interested in our opinion about it, and, and we get asked quite a bit about it. So, I think. Uh, that's another subject that we'll be covering on that Patreon when we start that up uh, in the springtime. So more info on that coming later. Stay tuned. Another interesting thing here that caught my eye, more on the paranormal aspect. And there's a book that came out. It actually came out a couple years ago, but this was just on Wisconsin Public Radio about a month ago. It says, many ghost hunters see their work as a pioneering scientific effort Wisconsin author explains, quote, the mainstream scientific community might marginalize ghost hunting, but a Wisconsin author who studies paranormal investigators said many within the profession, I don't know if I call it a profession yet, see their work as a pioneering scientific effort. Mark Eaton heads the sociology and anthropology department at Ripon College, and he wrote the book Sensing Spirits, Paranormal Investigation, and the Social Construction of Ghosts. So now this is a sociology, he's the head of sociology and anthropology at Ripon College. So this guy, you know, again, we're looking, we're, we're starting to get some real scientific research done in this field. You know, we talk about Duke University having an entire paranormal unit at their school. This guy, who's the head of sociology and anthropology department at Ripon College, is now writing books on on paranormal investigation. And we actually, we were actually contacted with by this guy in 2017-ish, 2018, um, MPIN was Midwestern Paranormal Investigative Network, and he was asking us then to come along on on paranormal investigations that we were doing. But by this time, our second son was born, and we had now we had two kids under three. And nice we just, priorities. We weren't ghost, ghost hunting was kind of on the back burner, I guess you could Bring say. Them along. By a lot, you can't make so, the, the little baby do ghost hunting with you. He didn't even try. You know, there there was some conversation there between us, but. Um, at that time, we just we we didn't have much going on, so we did not wind up doing that. But I was glad to see that he wrote this book, and actually, the groups that he went out with, he actually did come out and talk about his experiences that he was doing with these researchers. And he, and he gives them credit. He says, quote, they're confident that with the latest technologies and what might be coming down the road in 5, 10, 15 years, that they might be able to finally be the people who definitively prove that there's some form of life or some form of consciousness that exists beyond death. While there is a stigma around thinking ghosts are real, Eaton said many Americans are reported believers. One 2019 survey put the figure at 46%. That's in ghosts, just 46%. Now, we right. we had a, we talked about a study that we saw a couple weeks ago or a couple episodes ago where it was 83% of Americans believed there was something paranormal going on in their own house. Right. 83%. Now, that doesn't mean that they're seeing ghosts, but it means there's something going on in their house that they can't explain. 83%. But yeah, I mean, you don't know what all, all these studies are based, but the point is a lot of people believe, and I think we're, like like we talk about with the extraterrestrial, people are less afraid to talk about it because they're not going to be as quickly called crazy for doing so. Right. And if, you know, if we can get college professors or, you know, guys that are heading up entire departments to actually come along with people that do this stuff and to show the world... That, yeah, these people aren't kooks. And look at how much the government's coming. I mean, more and more the government's admitting to the fact that there's extraterrestrial and all that stuff. And I think the two kind of parallel each other as far as 
being able to admit it and not call being called crazy. So, I mean, we're just finally opening our minds and, and our mouths and not being afraid, afraid to do it as much, you know. So to eat and said paranormal investigators he interviewed most often relied on technology and science-heavy approach to their work. That meant using thousands of dollars of equipment, such as electromagnetic frequency readers, night vision cameras, motion detectors, vibration detectors, and barometric pressure sensors. And, I mean, all that's true. I mean, the, the, the people that investigate this stuff, they take it seriously. You know, they're, they're not what's stereotyped. You know, they're not necessarily what you see on TV, right? And they're not half-assing it, right? It's a, it's, we talked about this not that long ago. Pseudosciences, at some point, they become regular sciences because they, the legitimacy starts to come through with all the research and the fact that we evolve it far enough to understand that it is a true science. You know? and, I, and I think, that, you know, the years that this has been done by, a long time now. by serious researchers, you can call them pseudoscientists all you want even people do right. but they're they're serious they're right. serious researchers and that term is not being used as, as frequently right. as it once was but there's so much evidence quote unquote evidence out right. there that something is going on that these real scientists are kind of having to start taking a second look at this right. stuff and just like other scientists you know. started out you know now i believe although it is science based obviously everything is science based i think believing in the stuff is more faith based you know, if, if, if somebody doesn't believe in ghosts, you can show them all the evidence right. in the world. They're still not going to believe it. Well, it's like and any argument. And that's fine. Right. Like, People believe what they want to believe. If you're not interested or you don't believe, yeah, you're right. not going to believe the argument. Now, piggybacking on this a little bit, and I wanted to talk about this during Halloween. There was a, a this isn't a list, like, not like a top 10 list that I, I usually like to do, but this is a list of, of uh, ghost walks and trails in Wisconsin that really are worth doing. It says, Ghost Walks and Trails, The Legends and Myths in Wisconsin's historic sites, cemeteries, and towns. And I'll just go down some of the some of the places that have ghost walks that How you can actually go it? on. It's a lot longer than 10? No, it's not. It's not oh. very long at all. There's only a handful of places on there. Here, the one basically breaks it down into regions. Southern Wisconsin, the Pfister Hotel. We've heard of that. We talk about that, Quite a few obviously, times. a lot. Says the historic hotel has hosted presidents, rock stars, and plenty of baseball players <laughs> as visiting teams in town to play the Milwaukee Brewers typically stay at the spooky hotel. Obviously, or don't, or don't. Right, we've talked about that quite a bit. It also says recently, rapper Megan the Stallion documented her own eerie stay at the hotel while in town to perform at Summerfest in 2021. It says while the hotel does not offer tours itself, visitors can get a peek of the interior and try to do some of their own ghost hunting by attending one of the Fister hotels more family-friendly events like Breakfast with Santa. So if you want to go to Breakfast with Santa at the Fistro Hotel and look for some ghosts, they're basically inviting you to do so. Hopefully Santa's not the one that spooks you. Next one here is Wisconsin Dells Haunted History Trolley Tour. Wisconsin Dells may be called the water park capital of the world, but the city isn't all fun and games. In fact, if you believe in ghosts, it might be one of the scariest places you can visit. Take a ride on the Haunted History Trolley Tour to learn some of Wisconsin Dells' most spine-chilling stories. The tour stops at the Brat House Grill. Sounds amazing. A church-turned-restaurant that is rumored to house the spirits of both a young girl and a Union soldier as well as the Spring Grove Cemetery. Next one here is the Lake Geneva Ghost Walk. I was just in Lake Geneva this past weekend. We did you go not there go quite on a, a bit, don't you? I've been to Lake Geneva a number of times. Yeah, yeah. it's a great town. Great well, you, town. You brought the whole family too. I brought the whole. Yeah, normally we don't, right. but uh, the whole family came down this time. We went to a water park down there. 
Timber Ridge Water Park, uh, brought the kids for a little winter swimming. But this says, Lake Geneva Ghost Walk. It says, there's no need to travel all the way to Disney World to see the Haunted Mansion. Lake Geneva, a resort city in southeast Wisconsin, has at least two. Both the Baker House, now an elegant hotel, and the Maxwell Mansion can be viewed as part of the Lake Geneva Ghost Walk. The 90-minute walking tour is available year-round and costs $25 a person. Some of its haunted highlights include the Spirit of the Lake, a ghost who is rumored to talk to people who are out enjoying the city's namesake. I've heard about that. There's also Elm Park, where ghost hunters try to see the woman in black, a Victorian woman who is said to follow people throughout the park. Another interesting tidbit about Lake Geneva is if you're there, you can take about a 10-minute detour to Elkhorn and go look for the Beast of Bray Road. Which? Which we actually... You actually tried looking during the day. Well, no, we didn't try looking for it. Again, well, you kids, went to Bray Road. Well, sure, we drove down Bray Road. It's, it's only two miles. But it's, it was two in the afternoon. Why didn't you sit there for like eight or ten hours and, and wait for the beast to come out? Because I don't know Just where it would car. come out of, because it's basically all plowed fields and right. a couple of farms. But it's got to come out it, at night. Was, well, I'm sure your three boys... Had to sit there for ten hours. Yeah, your boys would have been totally patient sitting in the car doing nothing. No doubt. Well, they probably had their video games with them. No, they were actually kind of into looking for it, so... Not at 2 in the yeah. afternoon, unfortunately. Next one here, Shaker's Cigar Bar. Clearly, obviously, talked we talked about, about that, that quite a bit. Shaker's Cigar Bar in the city's Walker's Point neighborhood has been a local haunt for decades. There are even rumors that it was a haunt of Al Capone. Those are not rumors. That's actually no, pretty... That's it's true. It's, yeah. it's true that it was owned by the Capones. And there's bodies even... Guides say bones have been found in the walls of the building dating back to Prohibition times as well. Even in the basement, right? If that's not disturbing enough... The bar was also a haunt of serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer. If you're interested in seeing some overnight activity, go on a ghost hunting tour of the property or stay the night in the building's penthouse. Stay the night. If you remember, the building's penthouse is where their A-girl, right, was supposedly... Buried in the basement. Murdered right? and buried, not in the basement, but buried in the walls. Well, wasn't there? There, was, there, I there, there was are two more bodies basement. that yeah. are supposed to be in the basement, right? Right, but they never proved it was Al Capone or not. Pretty good guess that it might have been. Uh, old Baraboo Inn is the next one, obviously in Baraboo, the Old Baraboo Inn. Built in 1864, the inn is said to be one of the most haunted spots in the entire state. Initially opened as a boarding house, the building also has been used as a brothel and dive bar throughout its history. Fun place either way. Hell yeah. When the old Baraboo Inn was being restored in the early 2000s, lights would turn on and off, doors would open up and close by themselves, and tools would vanish and turn up in other locations. There have been reported sightings of phantoms in the inn, including a 20th century woman nicknamed Mary, and a chilling presence in the old Baraboo Inn's basement, according to local rumors. While they're not regularly held, tours of the old Baraboo Inn are sometimes available. There are also tours of the city's haunted downtown then they have a couple in here about madison and of course you got to have this one the rave eagles club and the ambassador hotel one of the milwaukee's largest and most popular music venues most didn't you just post a photo i did of you and i at the rave yeah yes yes, i did that's right about eight years ago or so i think hell yeah five years ago maybe one of the one of milwaukee's largest and most popular music venues most of the several floors within the rave contain stages and bars but the venue's basement is a completely different story. The rave 
used to be a clubhouse which featured a pool in the basement that's still there today and is reportedly haunted after a teenager drowned nearly a century ago. If you haven't had enough haunts at the rave, make your way across the street to the Ambassador Hotel. The century-old hotel has been around long enough to have multiple hauntings, but one of the most terrifying and tragic is the murder of Stephen Tuomi, a Milwaukee cook who was reportedly the first victim of serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer. While Dahmer was never officially charged in Tuomi's death, the killer said that he, quote, believes he murdered Tuomi at the Ambassador Hotel. There you go. There's that malingering and um, maybe I did. I think I did. I can't quite remember. I got drunk a lot. So that is just a few of the, well, here's here's another one that I'll hit here. The Spirits of the Grand in Oshkosh. You're familiar with that one, I was just there last summer, yeah. Old theaters always have a ghost story or two to tell, and there's no theater in Wisconsin older than the Grand in Oshkosh, which first opened 140 years ago. The Grand hosts approximately 125 performances each year, but throughout the month of October, the theater is dedicated to showcasing the spookier side of history. The Grand's ghost tours take attendees through some of the areas of the theater that are usually inaccessible to visitors, offering them the chance to communicate with spirits through the use of dousing rods. The theater also offers up a tour focusing just on the spirits that have made the historic theater their permanent home, as well as a kid-friendly variation of the tour. Did you guys come across anything when you did that, Mick? I know you've been there. You said not to I've been there. I, d- I did not do a haunting tour. Yeah, no, but... that guy I do the other podcast with and his wife and I, we all went there. Uh, they did the Divining Rods. Actually, we went down to the basement and one of the tour guides, she started talking to a little boy that was real playful and everything. So, I mean, as often is the case, a friendly spirit, definite communication was going on because she'd hold it up and the kid would, you know, follow orders and do exactly what she was saying and real playful and everything. But then somebody else tried to kid it wanted nothing to do with it so what do you mean it was doing what she was saying was she like she would with the divining rods i'm not that familiar with how they work but it's obvious that somebody else was moving it because when you hold it you can't really manipulate it yourself with one hand and that's all she was holding it with she would say point it in this direction or point it at somebody who's wearing this color shirt and it worked every time you mean somebody else that wasn't there somebody else that you couldn't see when you said it's obvious somebody else was moving it. Yeah, this uh, spirit, uh, this right. little boy that, that she figures, uh, okay. that he said his name and everything. But she would ask a question of these. She, we're all strangers to her in the group. She'd ask a question about a color shirt somebody's wearing. And the, the little spirit, this little boy, would take the divining rod and point it right at the person she's talking about. So, I mean, it, it was pretty obvious in my mind that it was, you know, legit. You never know for sure, but... Mm-hmm. It seemed pretty cool. and it, I mean, it's, it's only like an hour and a half, two hours, because um, there was somebody, a, a guest speaker whose name I can't remember, but it, it's pretty interesting. You sit there, you have a few drinks, and then they take you around the place. It's definitely worth going at least once. So, so yeah, there you go. There's a, a list of a few of the of the walking tours, the ghost walking tours throughout the state. Again, Wisconsin. Fucked up place. Known as one of the most haunted places in the state. In the country. In, in the country. Yeah, right. More than one person has said that. and uh, Not just you and I, other people. Right. Too. There seems to be reason for it. So the morning of January 28th, 1927, something's going on in the woods outside of Platteville. So 1927, going back a ways here, Calvin Coolidge is president. Fred Zimmerman is our governor, not one of our most popular governor names. He's a one-term governor. I'm not real familiar with that anyway, so. The jazz singer opens, so the the silent film era is ended. So we're we're kind of leaving the, uh, the roaring 20s here. And heading into the Great Depression. 
But in Platteville, there's a crowd gathering outside of what was known as Writer's Woods. Or Bratton's Woods. Or Bratton's Woods, which was about five miles southwest of Platteville. Now, there are police on the scene. There's a search crew on the scene. Uh, there's crowds of, of locals growing, not only locals, but people that have come from a ways away. You know, the crowd starts small, and then it grows larger. 50 people, 100 people, hundreds of people, ultimately culminating between two and 3,000 people have now gathered at this site in the woods outside of Platteville. They figured there was more than 700 vehicles there. 700 vehicles. Just the vehicles. And it's cold, right? It's January. There's there's a lot of snow on the ground. People are bundled up. It doesn't matter. They're out there. They're coming to see something. And soon there's a line of cars that come to the scene. Police cars mainly. It's basically a caravan of municipal vehicles that, quote, fought its way over the snow-filled roads, unquote. There's also deputies and officers from Iowa, Illinois, and Wisconsin. So something big is happening here, right? Now, like Mickey said, there's already a line of cars parked along the road from the onlooker. So all these, this this caravan of police cars is just adding to this kind of chaotic scene here. And once this line of cars gets on the scene, one last single car comes up and stops. Several police... Taylor Swift. (laughs) Oh, she wasn't alive yet. It kind of it kind of sets the scene for that though, doesn't yeah, it? It, right. kind of, it does sound like we're we're breaks out in song when she gets there. <laughs> so several police get out, and they open the back door, and this and a, and a man gets out, who's certainly not a police officer, and not Taylor Swift, and not Taylor Swift. He's about fifty-ish, wearing a black overcoat, black leather gloves, a tan fedora, and this man's name is William Coffee. And he's about to show the police where they can find what they're looking for. And he's also... It's not a treasure. They're not looking for buried treasure, To some people it might be. Well, that's even more morbid than I'm willing to say. He's also who this crowd of two to 3,000 people have come to see. Now, who is William Coffey? Well, in terms of what we know about William Coffey and the limited documentation that we have about him and his life, he's... He was pretty unremarkable, right? I don't mean that in a derogatory way. Just he seemed to live a a fairly ordinary life. But, you know, he had some bumps in the road when he was younger. But for the most part, what we know of him seemed to be pretty ordinary. But now we know he didn't live an ordinary life, which makes what we do know about him and don't know about him both pretty scary. Right, and we'll obviously get into all that. Now, William Coffey... No, we're done. That's it. That's, let's go home, buddy. We'll see you next episode. So William Coffey was born in Johns River Township, North Carolina, in 1874. And that's a rural area about 100 miles north of Charlotte. He's actually a descendant of Daniel Boone, which is interesting. His, yeah, his, it is. his father was like Daniel Boone's great nephew. Two different type so, of characters here. Right. <laughs> One is uh, revered in history books for generations, and the other one... Is in history. Sure. We're talking about him 100 years later. different reasons. (laughs) Now, there's outlets claiming he was born in Iowa, which he wasn't. There's outlets claiming that he was born in Manhattan, Kansas, which he wasn't. And that's because this guy lied all of the time. Like a lot of the stars of these podcasts we talk about, they're real good at 
telling anything but the truth. Lies and more lies fill this guy's background. Now, he did spend time in Iowa. He attends Drake University in, in Des Moines. Uh, he enters into their biblical studies program. So he's a very religious person, right? Sure. He's apparently from a very Good Christian from a very young age. Yes, he is a, a very uh, much a practicing Christian, a very religious man. He attends biblical studies program at Drake University. We're not trying to be derogatory towards religion, by the way. It just seems a little bit ironic in this case. And he actually ministers at a small church in Des Moines while he's in school. But he never graduates from Drake. And that's because he begins an affair while he's a student at Drake with a much older woman. He's 21 years of age. She's much older. She is, again, he's 21. She is, wait for it, 163. 72. Oh, I wasn't that far off. 72. It's kind of... Man of the cloth, right? I didn't get the shivers this time. That's cool. The woman's four times older than him. And during this time, he gets arrested. Hey, Mrs. Robinson. He gets arrested and charged with larceny because he's stealing from her. Obviously, there's a hidden agenda here that uh, the 72-year-old apparently couldn't see. So right off the bat, we know that this guy's a fraud, right? He says he's a man of God. He's not... Says he's in a relationship with this woman. He's not. He's well, stealing from her. We don't know which God. I mean, sounds like he's a man of some kind of deity. Right. So she accuses him of stealing $600, and he gets sent to prison. Now, $600 in 1895 is a, a lot of money. I don't know exactly what it is today, but several thousand dollars. So he gets he gets sent to prison, and he gets a three-and-a-half-year sentence at Fort Madison in Iowa, of which he serves two years and nine months. And he gets kicked out of school. And when he gets out of prison, he becomes a bit of a drifter and a very charming drifter, apparently. He gets a job at a newspaper in Eau Claire selling advertising, but then he begins work with the Central Howard Agency, which is an organization which works with discharged and paroled convicts. So with all his lying, going to prison, coming out of prison and working with paroled and discharged convicts, this is very... He's either giving back because he's remorseful or he's, you know, giving them tips on how to do it better. It's very... He's practiced himself. Ed Edwards-ish. Yeah, that's, we both thought the same thing. Very we Ed Edwards-ish. So in an article in the Baraboo News Republic of February 23rd, 1926, he's written about... And it says, William Coffey of Madison and Judge Evans of Chicago were guests of the Heart of the Hills Walking Club on Monday at Highcliffe Devil's Lake. Mr. Coffey was born among the mountains in western North Carolina, but has been in Wisconsin for many years. He is engaged in giving encouragement to men who have served terms in prison or who are on parole, working for a private organization in connection with the state. He's had some thrilling experiences, once being seriously wounded by a revolver shot from a man on parole. That man was taken to prison, and another time he had a red-hot fork run through his nose in a factory where convicts are at work. That happens to only the best of people, typically. He told, of, he told of getting men started right and enabling them to live successful lives, unquote. So here he is. Newspaper articles are being written about him, about all of his harrowing experiences working with ex-cons, right? Which he is one, by the way. But he's telling all these kind of hero stories about him and all the work that he does with convicts and how dangerous it can be. Now, he's a volunteer with the organization, right? He, this, isn't not, this is not how he makes a living. So throughout this time, when he gets out of prison in 1903 to 1926, he's drifting. He's working all kinds of jobs. 
in all kinds of fields. And in 1910, he moves to Madison. But he would delve into a different kinds of business in all other cities and states, which means he would leave for months at a time, apparently tending to all these other business affairs that he had. He was a bill collector. He was a bond salesman. So the Kenosha News writes in 1927, it says, quote, In Independence and Mequaquita, which are two towns in Iowa, Coffee conducted collection agencies and mingled in social and church circles. His knowledge of the Bible always resulted in his being welcomed in church circles. Residents of both cities recall his affairs with several women. <laughs> Those are two interesting sentences to be back yep. to back, right? Yeah. That says, leaving McQuaquita in 1919, Coffee disappeared about the same time as a young woman with whom he had kept company. She was heard from at Boston, Massachusetts, where she accepted a position and then dropped out of sight. Her disappearance has never been solved. There's a little foreshadowing there. Yeah. Recent years have found Coffee earning a living as a bond salesman, traveling to various Wisconsin cities, and spending little of his time at home, unquote. So this guy has got all kinds of opportunities to do all kinds kind of, an enigma. of shady shit. Right. right, and yeah, nobody knows for sure what he is or... Maybe he doesn't even know who he is. He he has a home base, technically, right? That's in Madison, but he's never there. So he's gallivanting around with his businesses. He's having these trysts with other women. And by 1926, he's 52 years old. Now, his age is all over the place when you do the research on this guy. Again, because he's lying all the time. And on one of these business trips, this time to lacrosse, he meets another woman. But this one apparently holds his interest a little bit longer. 53-year-old Hattie Mae Sherman Hales. They met earlier in 1926, quickly began dating, and fell madly in love almost as fast. So Hattie Hale's 53-year-old widow and former school teacher from Elroy, Wisconsin, just west of Mauston. She was very attractive. She was a buyer at Dorflinger's department store, looking much younger than her age. Like Scott said, she had been widowed for six years, and she felt an immediate, undeniable attraction for coffee. He said he was a wealthy social worker and bond salesman. And he also claimed to own his own real estate in Madison, Wisconsin. He swept her off her feet by speaking Bible verses and of grand dreams of entering ministry and saving lost souls. Speak, Smooth talker. Speaking Bible verses and saving lost souls. It works for me in every bar I go into. <laughs> Doesn't it? Now, Hattie also lived in Eau Claire with her first husband, who was George Hales. Uh, and he was a railroad conductor until he died in 1922. Now, there's no evidence that William and Hattie knew each other when they were both living in Eau Claire. Um, but seemingly it, they first met here in La Crosse when Hattie was, as Mickey said, working as a buyer for a department store um, where she came when her husband died. Hattie, again, has this, this very youthful presence about her, right? She, she looks much younger than her 53 years. And they, be, they, they hit it off great. They begin this very fast, intense courtship in the summer of 1926. And soon... They get engaged, and as soon as they get engaged, they get married. In September September 15, 1926, they eloped in Winona, Minnesota. So they drive to Minnesota to get married. And according to Hattie's friends, who last saw her on the day she and William left La Crosse, they were supposed to drive to Minneapolis to be married. But the day was so stormy, and they got a pretty late start that day, that they stopped in Winona, and they got married there. Now, you know, the question is, why did they go to Minnesota to get married? Well, Winona's a pretty area. Well, why didn't they? Why did they leave the state? Maybe that was the only. Like, place did nobody I, ask this? Why? Why are we going to leave? The only place you could get married at the time, evidently. <laughs> 
That in Vegas, right? Like, why no cross the Mississippi River to get married? Is yeah. this like, what are we doing, right? Right. So now it's known that their honeymoon was just going to be basically a long road trip around the Midwest, which... Camping. I know, it kind of sounds cool to me, actually. But, you yeah. know, so nobody seemed to question the fact that, hey, you know, it's a big deal to him that they leave Wisconsin to get married. But according to her friends, you know, she referred to herself as the happiest woman in the world. So there was really no reason to doubt her. Also... As she ran to the car before they left, she was carrying a bundle of paperwork. And she raised it up over her head and she yelled back to her friends that, quote, all of my worldly possessions are in this bundle, unquote. That bundle was... thing to be yelling. That bundle was all stocks and bonds. Yeah. And she's now going to marry a bond salesman. Right. I wonder, is there some kind of correlation there? There may be a little bit. But right now they're happy, right? Yeah, Hattie's friends. Spend ten minutes. What the hell? But they they were happy that Hattie was happy in love again. William was finally going to be a husband as he always wanted to be. Her friends relayed a story that they were all eating cake one day and there was one piece left and everybody refused to get it right because they didn't want to act like they were gorging themselves right. So he swoops in and he takes it, and he says, "Quote: Well, I've been a bachelor all my life, but it won't be long now until I'm a married man, so I'm willing to risk it." Unquote. So he's like making a little joke that he's kind of. Now that he's going to be married, he can let himself go and, you know, splurge on this extra piece of cake. Just like you did, right? Of course. Yeah. For all of any of her friends knew, uh, this was true love, right? Hattie was happy. William was happy. They were two older adults, you know, in their 50s, finding love for her the second time, for him, finally. So it seemed to be a match made in heaven. So off they go and they get married. Again, on September 15th, 1926, and they're seemingly on top of the world. And then they drive from Winona, Minnesota, where they got married, to Rockford, Illinois, to stay with Hattie's sister and mother. Again, she's originally from Elroy, but her sister moved to Rockford when she got married, and her mother eventually went and moved in with her. So they go stay with Hattie's mother and sister. For supposed to be a couple of weeks. For two weeks in Rockford. And for two weeks, pretty much all William did was talk about him and his life and all of his possessions and his mansion that he had in Detroit, a, a quote, marvelous mansion with many colored servants, unquote. Like, apparently that is a benchmark of, of being wealthy. Like, yeah, right. He also had a garage apparently so big that he had a turntable installed in the floor to eliminate having to back out. This is in 1927, so that would be a big deal. Yeah, and then, he's, right? he's really not full of shit at all. I mean, who even lies about something like that? And the plan was them to drive home uh, to Detroit to live in their new mansion when they left Rockford. But while they were there, Coffee said his presence was needed back in Dubuque, Iowa, so they left. So he has uh, apparently a business issue that needs to be dealt with. So he got a piece of mail in Rockford and said that he was needed in Dubuque. So there goes their plans to go to Detroit. Now they have to go to Dubuque for him uh, to tend to one of his, his businesses. So they leave her family in Rockford, and everyone is still happy. Hattie is still mad. Even her love. family is all happy that she fell in love and yeah. to see her as always, and, and just glad to see her. I don't think they were there the full two weeks because of this. No, uh, he unexpectedly got, got called away. Right, right. After only a few days. Huh. So all is, all is good in the world of, of the newlyweds here, Mr. and Mrs. Coffey. And a few days later, on October 6th, so he got the letter on October 1st calling him back to Dubuque. On October 6th, 
Hattie's mother and sister receive a letter from Hattie in Hattie's handwriting on hotel stationery from a hotel in Dubuque. So they know that they're there and they got there safely, right? So that eases their mind. There's nothing to worry about. Once they were back there, he actually visited an 80-year-old woman named Fanny Ryder. He collected $25 from her on behalf of the Central Howard Association. This going back to his good deeds as far as serving prisoners. And then, like you said, Hattie wrote a letter to her family, letting them know that they were fine. So a few days later, they receive another letter. This one from William, saying that they'll be attending a banquet in his honor in Chicago. And that Hattie was sitting right there beside him as he wrote the letter. And then all the subsequent letters for a while were all written by William. Never written by her again. And then he sent letters written with a typewriter. One of them said, quote, My daddy bought me a typewriter so I can write you all more often, unquote. And the letters were signed with her signature, yes. But it was a rubber stamp signature. So the family's now starting to get a little weirded out now, right? There's no physical evidence of Hattie. So they write back and ask Hattie to write in her own hand, and it's ignored. So now they start getting nervous. They don't know where Hattie is. And eventually they find out there was no banquet in Chicago. There is no mansion in Detroit. And Hattie Hales is not only missing, but now her family wonders if she's even alive at all. So Hattie's family is concerned, and rightfully so, right? They have no word from her in several weeks. And anything they have gotten has been typewritten letters signed by him, right? Signed by a rubber stamp signature. Right, right a rubber stamp. So it's, it's, it's her signature, but it's stamped, right? It's not a real handwritten signature. And they're beginning to fear that her, you know, her knight in shining armor here, Mr. William Coffey, is a con man, or maybe worse. And then they receive another letter, postmarked November 3rd, from Asheville, North Carolina. Now, they don't really know anything about Asheville, North Carolina. You know, they're told they're going to Dubuque, or they're at a house in Detroit, or a banquet in Illinois. They don't know about North Carolina, they're right? They're camping all over. So, and the letter is kind of a doozy. <laughs> so, in it, William tells Hattie's family that she has left him for another man. They met some suave, handsome man that they came across on their honeymoon trip, referred to as Mr. St. Clair. And Hattie seems pretty smitten by this Mr. St. Clair, and that's all we know him as. There's never a first name. There's never anything about who he is or who he may be. That's just a man that kind of always appears where they are. Everywhere they went, and, and the story would say that she had an obvious instant attraction to him, almost like she did towards Mr. Coffey when they first right. met. And all we know him as is Mr. St. Clair. So William and Hattie are camping in North Carolina, and they had a tent set up for a few days. And William was away from the tent for some time, and when he returned one day at about four in the afternoon, he was surprised to find Hattie and Mr. St. Clair together in the tent. Quote, the shock overcame me and I fell unconscious. When I came to again about six o'clock, Hattie and Mr. St. Clair had gone. I found a note which Hattie wrote me saying that she was going away with him and to show me that there were no hard feelings, she left me her stock certificates in the Elroy Service Oil Company. $500 worth of shares. 
Huh. Isn't that what everybody does? Sure, I'm cheating on you, but here's all my money. Here's a John Deere letter. Right. Oh, With all a... my shares of Elroy Service <laughs> Oil Company. Said she was leaving him, but didn't think it was fair to leave him with nothing for his grief. Like, who wouldn't buy that story? Oh, yeah. I mean, just, and she sees this guy, she's with him, you know, in bed. 20 minutes later, he wakes up from fainting, and he sees a letter with some money in it. It looks like it was about two hours later. He says he got there at about 4 o'clock, and he came to about 6 o'clock. So what the hell happened in those two yeah. hours? Yeah. Well, so now kind of dream he was having. Now they know, unfortunately, that Hattie was conned. So they need to find now. They need to find out where is Hattie. So not long after, they received another postcard from Coffee. Claimed that he wouldn't chase her, and that he wanted her to be happy, even if it was with another man. He also said that he was headed toward the mountains of North Carolina, just to clear his head and get away for a while. The tone and the writing type and signature all started bothering Hattie's sister Anna for some time because of her speculation and just being worried about what her sister was and not having really heard from her in her opinion. She took the letters to Juneau County Sheriff's Department handwriting expert and they discovered the signatures were imprinted on letters with a rubber stamp, as Scott already mentioned. Fearing foul play and... Anna and her brother-in-law approached police about setting a trap for coffee. So after hearing this story, they set up a stockholders meeting, and they had a letter sent to Hattie advising her of the meeting. So they, they write William back a letter, and they say, Oh, you know what? Oh, poor you. We're, we're, you know, we're, we're sorry about what happened. They're still kind of buying it. They're just kind of speculating. They're acting like they're true. buying it. Right. right. They're at least they're, trying they're to saying, set him up. We're, we're sorry that that happened. You know, we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll catch up with Hattie soon. But you know what? In, in, in the meantime, the Elroy Service Oil Company is, is having a board meeting here on January 20th. So if you come, you can sell your bonds back to them that she signed over to you. Because you deserve it after all right. the grief you've right. been through. And you can reap your $500. So this guy takes the bait. Maybe not the sharpest tool in the shed. He, re- he returns home to Madison. And he's home for Christmas on December 23rd. And he takes a train to Elroy and he goes to this supposed Elroy Service Oil Company board meeting where he is subsequently arrested. Well, he's got his stock certificates and the deed letter supposedly received from Hattie in his hand, expecting to collect his $500. On January 21st, 1927, he was arrested by Sheriff Lyle Wright and charged with forgery with his letter quickly examined and stamp signature confirmed. So he used the rubber stamp to sign over the bonds to him, which is illegal. It's not in anybody's hand, so they arrested him for forgery. So now he's in a jail cell, right? And he's being grilled on where is Hattie Hales? Because that's the big question now, right, is where is Hattie Hales? He's now been arrested for forgery. We know that he stole her bonds. We know that he's concocted some story about her leaving him. Where is Hattie Hale? Nobody's seen or heard from her in, in weeks to months now. So although he says he doesn't know where Hattie is, she left with Mr. St. Clair. He's sticking to that story. He does admit that he indeed has a wife, but it's not Hattie Hales because that marriage was illegal. He has a wife of 23 years who lives in Madison. Her name is Alberta Ellen. And they have three children, all high school age, two girls and a boy. Still very much alive, still very much married to him. Like you said, all living together in Madison. Douglas Fredwell was born in 1907. Alberta Ellen, born in 1909. And Miriam Marlin, born in 1910, were their three kids. 
So this entire time, not only through his little whirlwind romance with uh, Hattie here, but through all of his romances with all of his other trysts, he was married the whole time. He's been married for over two decades. He also denies that, he, that the signatures on the bonds uh, were made with a rubber stamp. So he denies the forgery charge. Not sure how you can deny something that is... Obvious. Obviously. Black and white. Right. And as far as uh, his wife, the, the police actually received a call from Miss Alberta, Ellen Coffey, after she saw a photo of Hattie in a newspaper and recognized the coat she was wearing as one that Williams sent to her previously. Intrigued, Juneau County DA Robert Clark and two detectives and Sister Anna went to Coffey's residence. Alberta said she received two large packages a few weeks earlier that contained several suitcases full of Hattie's clothes, jewelry, and several rubber stamps of her signature. See a theme here? There was clothing and jewelry identified and verified by the sister Anna. Now aware of the truth, Alberta said, quote, He is not worth shedding a tear over. I am through with him for good. He hasn't been much home anyway, unquote. Nothing so, but prettiness going on. So when he arrived for Christmas, he, he sent, before he arrived home, he sent Christmas presents back to the house for his wife and his daughter and his son which were actually Hattie's possessions. Just her stuff that he it was claimed from her. Hattie's clothes. One was, I think, a diamond ring that he gave to his daughter for a graduation present. So this guy's a real, a real piece of work. So he he denies that the that the signatures were were made from a rubber stamp. But as Mickey said, they actually find the rubber stamp Multiple. among his possessions. He had a few of them too. Sounds like they find the typewriter that was used to write the letters among his possessions. And as Hattie was an expert typist, that was part of her job. She was an expert typist. They knew she didn't write the letters, as if some of them were, quote, incoherent, unquote. <laughs> so he drove from Dubuque to Asheville, North Carolina. And he was also seen many times on that trip when he was supposedly with Hattie. He was seen many times during that trip, gas stations, banks, etc., always seen alone. Hattie was never with him. And he apparently told a friend in Chicago that Hattie was dead. And when that was brought to him in jail, he said, well, you know, I meant as far as I'm concerned, she's dead. You know, she's dead to me. So he's, he's done, right? Taken in and held under charges of forgery and bigamy in Juneau County Jail in Mauston, Wisconsin. His bail was set a default of 10,000 bonds, $10,000 in bonds. While questioned, the lies continued, but the story began falling apart. He claimed that he forged letters due to not having the heart to tell her family about her being such a Jezebel. On January 24, 1927, he finally claimed accidentally killing her. Claimed it happened on October 10th after an evening of singing hymns, but of course. He says they're camping next to the Mississippi River when they had gone to Dubuque. So he says that he had to leave the tent. Again, they're always in tents. I'm not sure. Uh, you know, other than when they were in, in the hotel in Dubuque, ever since then they've been in tents. So they're they're living off the grid, I guess. But yeah, they're, they're in a, living the luxury life. They're in a tent supposedly outside of Dubuque, and he has to go to Dubuque and tend to some business. So when he returns, Hattie was very angry, according to him, and that uh, you know very angry that he had been gone so long, and that she accuses him of having an affair. So she becomes angry, and she picked up a small indoor baseball bat, kind of like one of those mini bats, I'm assuming, um, and she threw it at him. He says, quote, I caught it and intended to throw it out of the tent, but instead I struck her in the head and fractured her skull. There I was, 
with the body of the woman I loved so well. What was I to do? I picked her body up, carried it to the middle of the bridge, and threw it in the river. I killed her. I struck her in the head with a baseball bat. Then I threw her body, clad in a nightgown, into the Mississippi River. He said he hit her in the head and she fell limp to the ground. Horrified, he ran to check out if she was all right, finding her skull had been fractured and bleeding. He put his ear on her chest and heard no heartbeat. She was dead. Now, there, but there's, there's another problem here, and that's, first of all, there's only two bridges in the vicinity of the Mississippi of where they were at the time. And they're both very difficult to get to, especially when you're carrying a dead body, right? One was actually closed because it just wasn't feasible to traverse it. So he couldn't get there, much less carrying a dead body. And also, there has been no bodies found in the Mississippi River at this time, from October to where we are now in January. No body has ever come Something up. should have come up, most right. likely. It's, it's a big river, but something like that would appear at some point. So police aren't, they're not buying this. They're not buying the fact that he killed her somewhere by the Mississippi, dropped her off from a bridge. Um, they do believe that he killed her, but they don't believe the story that he's, that he's saying. So now the other, the other issue he has is, again, they're pretty sure that he killed her. Where he killed her is a big deal. Because if he killed her on the Iowa side of the Mississippi, he's facing the noose. Capital punishment. I read over and over that he was adamant about getting this point across to them. That he killed her in Wisconsin? I killed her in Wisconsin. <laughs> right. Wouldn't you? Well, I maybe wouldn't do this to begin with. But, right. yeah, I mean, he wanted to make sure he wasn't getting capital punishment because he knew, well, the light was on and right in his face. He knew what was coming. Right. Now, police believe it was actually in Eagle Point Park, which is in Iowa. So he's he's getting a little hot under the collar here, right? On January 24th, 1927, he finally 100% claims to accidentally killing Hales, as we're mentioning. He claimed it happened on October 10th after having singing hymns. Quote, she kept at me, and the more she talked, the madder she got, unquote. He said he hauled her body to the middle of the bridge and dropped it overboard. Blamed mental spells he had, like ones landing his father in an insane asylum when he was younger. He's always got an excuse, always got a reason for why he's doing it. That's that malingering amnesia. Again. Yeah, there it is mental again. Mental spell. Yeah, these it's guys like really know how to use this. Yeah, you think they'd use the term, wouldn't you? Funny how it keeps showing up with these guys. Huh? Maybe I should use that at work when I forget something and, <laughs> right. and don't do it. I right. have malingering amnesia. Leave me alone. <laughs> right. If nothing else, they won't know what the hell it means. They'll just get confused and walk away. So then Alberta, his real wife, calls again, and, and she has some items again at home that she wants to give police that they think she thinks might aid them in the uh, investigation. Now, it should be said that his family wrote him off, by the way. They're done with him. Completely disavowed him. Actually, wife said she wanted him to hang, right? Right. As Mickey said earlier, he was never around anyways. Right. She they were done wasn't going to shed a tear. She didn't even, he wasn't there. She'd basically already given up on the guy. So when the police went to the house, the house in Madison, they went in the basement and they found a mat, a tent, a spade, and a pickaxe. And the mat... He was when, going rock climbing? That's what it sounds like. Yeah. But when the mat was unrolled, there were long, dark brown streaks on it that they obviously they believed to be blood, and they became very thick at the ends of the mat, which they believe was pooling blood. This house still exists, by the way. 212 North Blunt Street in Madison. I'm assuming you've been there, and too, And it looks probably. exactly like it did that, like everything. Like you even, have been there? I've been outside. 
been outside of it. Are you it, kidding me? It looks exactly like it did that day. Even there's like a little arch over the front door that is just flimsy wood. It's still there, dude. Like it like looks good or it years. looks it No, looks, it looks it looks fine. There's it it's camp is housing now. The house is identical to where it was. I mean, because they the it's printed in the paper and in January of 1927 the photo of the house that they lived in is in the paper and you stand outside the house today it's the same ever the siding is different but the you know well, the, the, sure that kind of stuff you know the the little cos- cosmetic stuff on the house so you know the, the the shutters the arch over the doorway that's all the same the blood stains I, yeah the, probably if you go down in the basement i bet you there's something <laughs> from this day dark brown so, stains yeah anyways it, that that house is is still there so so these things you know which which usually get renovated over 100 years you know these little cosmetic things not this house it's still <laughs> We should buy it's it. still there. We should buy so, it for ghost hunts. I just, you know, I bet you, and all the students that have lived in that house in the last hundred years, none of them know the they story. Have no bet. freaking clue, right? Right. Well, so, nothing really bad happened there. It's just well, he, no, he stored the stuff right, there. That's but, where the you know. stuff from the bad stuff happened or stored. Now, police now pretty much know that he didn't throw her in the river. Right? He likely buried her somewhere. So they come back to him again, and they say, you know what? Uh, we think you killed her in Iowa, and we think you probably buried her. So now he says, okay, okay, you're right. I stashed the corpse in the car, and I drove to the outskirts of Platteville, then dismembered the body with the hatchet that he had. Quote, first I severed her feet at the ankles, wrapping them separately in newspapers. Next I cut off the hands at the wrists. I cut the legs off at the knees, wrapping them separately. I cut off the thighs at the joint, and then I cut off the head, unquote. This sounds like a panicked guy who doesn't know what he's doing, doesn't it? Well, he said he sat with the body for a while before he did this. Maybe that's when the remorse and he dealt with it. Because he talks about sitting, again, it's, well, I guess at this time it was October, but he talks about, like, kneeling next to the body in the moonlight before he does this. Sounds romantic. And he's kind of, you know, marinating on what he did and what he's about to do. And with only the torso left, he cut it open, pulled out the internal organs to bury them separately. Then he cut the trunk in half, wrapping each in a blanket. Now, from what we've said, he doesn't have a history of having done this, but this sure sounds like a guy who knows what the hell to do in this situation, doesn't it? Well, he was he he was questioned later for a number of other murders in the Midwest. And this is where you get the fact that he was never home. Right. He had all of these supposed business uh, issues going on all throughout the area that he would, you know, he was he was never in Madison. His home base was in Madison. He's always all throughout the upper Midwest. He's never at home. So And he's got these things in his car, and he knew how to handle this perfectly. So even more to that, he then, according to this latest story, buried the body parts in a separate shallow graves in Bratton's, a.k.a. Ritter's Woods, five miles southwest of Platteville. He claimed, though, he had no shovel in the car, miraculously came across one. Said it almost appeared magically, not remembering where it came from. There's that term again you're talking about. Yeah. He also confessed to digging up the head after burying it separately and tossing it off the bridge, as previously said he had done with the entire body. So, more lies. So, he had he's still going with the story that was an accident that he killed her, though, right? He's yep. still going with the story that she threw the bat at him, he caught it, he tried to throw it out of the tent, but it it accidentally hit her so hard that He's it killed just her. So strong, his arm must—he must have been like a world. class And then athlete. he dismembers her body, 
And, and that's what you would do when you're ba- panicking. Sure, I guess so. But and so love. he basically had to cop to this to prove the fact that he did it in Wisconsin because her body... Keeps talking about Platteville, Platteville, Platteville. Uh, so he, he buried the body in many different holes right. in Ryder's Woods outside of Platteville, and he had to cop to this again to prove that it happened in Wisconsin. Right. To take, that was the only consistent fact, that it was in Wisconsin. To take the death penalty off the table. Although that doesn't, it doesn't really prove that he killed her in Wisconsin. No. Right? But, but that's where they'll try. But now you have to prove that he didn't. Right. And that was that was the issue that the police have. So, you know, he tells the general area of where he buried her because he wanted to prove again that it's in Wisconsin. So on January 27, 1927, the complete truth finally comes out. Overcome by his fear of his wife discovering his bigamous second marriage, he actually killed her as she slept next to him. This is him finally confessing what actually happened. Quote, I killed her because I wanted to be free from her to cover up my sins with her. I killed her, Hattie Hales, in the woods about five miles southwest of Platteville, unquote. He used the child's bat, then a hammer, striking her repeatedly in the head. Quote, I reached over and got the ball bat and struck her over the head. I then absolutely lost control of myself. I seized the hammer and hit her with it. I cannot tell how many times, because I was afraid this bigamous marriage would get back to my family in Wisconsin, unquote. Then he spoke in detail how he waited at camp all day long, as Scott alluded to, on October 9th before disposing of the body, as previously mentioned. He just sat with the body. This finally off his chest, his mood changed to congenial, almost happy and conversational. Then he spoke of his literature, his religion, and his writing aspirations. This all according to the Milwaukee Sentinel. Now that he'd gotten all this horrible stuff off his chest now he's right back to being mr religion sure that's isn't that what you do when you talk about the person that you just dismembered and sure but it's off your chest now that you've been honest you can go back to being who you really are so he talks about where this her body was buried they ensue a search party and within a few hours a farmer who was part of the search party finds the first hole he said he could tell that the area looked disturbed and the ground was soft compared to the rest of the frozen ground all around it so he dug down a bit and found part of her torso. So they knew now that they were in the right spot. So this, this was at nighttime. So they, they pretty much stopped until daylight until the next day. And even in 1927, word gets out, right? Radios, newspapers. So you have the crowd gathering the next morning. This is a, a pretty big national story. At the time, again, 1927, storylines in numerous states, Wisconsin, Iowa, Illinois, Minnesota, North Carolina. As we mentioned, the detectives from three of those states were at the site looking for the body parts. So when word gets out that that they may have found her, people swarmed to that area, up to 3,000 people. Well, back then, the news wasn't as readily available, so a story like this was dominating. Everybody would know about it. But not... You, you you can't get it like we would get it on cable news. Right. Like, I mean, they had to... There were, but, it was in know, the newspapers, were, but at least... Or radio least, report. But this would be the thing they were talking about over some of the other stories they might have had at the time because it just wasn't so in your face as it is now. So even in 1927, we have, you know, the, the ambulance chasers, the thrill seekers, basically. When informed that some of Hale's body had been found, knowing he'd soon be in prison, Coffey's response was, quote... I would like to establish myself as a trustee. There I would be able to help convicts and also find time to finish my book, Hard Scrabble, unquote. 
Still thinking about promoting himself. And and he wrote a book. Yeah. Just like Mr. Edwards. Something's it's like Edwards like emulated this right. guy. Yeah, right. But, never talked yeah. about him, but it's almost this, the same story. No kidding. So as the crowd gathers, as we talked about in the very beginning, a caravan of police vehicles arrive. Coffee steps out. They handcuff him to another police officer, and he walked around the area, and he pointed at all the holes where he remembered he buried her. And they dug her up, little by little. And when her head was finally dug up, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel wrote, quote, hundreds surged toward the excavation beside which coffee stood. They tore at one another to get a glimpse of the gruesome object taken from the hole, and then they became a stampeding, surging herd which threatened to trample officers and the yellow clay-encrusted object they had found. The crowd tugged and jostled, persons in front pushed by those on the outside, and when it appeared that they were about to overwhelm the two dozen deputies and other officers, they were quieted by only one promise. Everyone would be permitted to see, but there had to be order. So the police, in order to appease this crowd, because they're pushing their way in order to see... Mob mentality to see a body part. To see this head... In order to stop them from overtaking the police, they had to say, you know what, we'll let you see it. Please don't do this. We'll let you see it. So they laid out a large blanket and displayed the body parts that they dug up, including her head, and allowed the crowd to form a single <laughs> like, file line Like to these view are it. pieces of archaeology that right. people want to see. It said, it said that it took more than an hour for a single file line to pass by yeah. the blanket they, on the ground. They let people look at it as long as they wanted. Fathers, sons, women, and young girls all took their chance to walk by it. It's like an open casket funeral. Right. You know, walking by and seeing this, this woman's decrepit body that's been buried in frozen dirt for three months. Now, when Coffee got back to the car, the crowd surrounded the vehicle and demanded that he be, that he be brought back out so everyone could get a look at they him. They wanted to see P- him, too. Apparently not everybody saw him when he was out there pointing at the hole, so the crowd was going to make sure everybody gets a look at this guy. So they made him take him back out of the car, and the cops did. And then he, they had him stand on the running boards? So he was up above everybody so they could all see that like he's a freaking... Circus animal. Right. Or like, or, or like, yeah, it's is, crazy. Yeah. This is in Wisconsin a yeah. hundred years ago. <laughs> like this is a Stephen King movie. Yeah. Right. And it, he's kind of, they're treating him like a circus animal, but celebrity all at the same time. It was just... There's a blog out there um, and it's called, it's called History and Politics by Dennis A. Wilson. Dennis A. Wilson is a, uh, he's some kind of a distant relative of William Coffey. And he, he talks about that there's photos of this day when all the police are out there and they bring Coffey out there and he shows them where it is and this, this very macabre scene out in the woods outside of Platteville. And they were hidden in an attic for like 90 years, 70 years or something. And somebody found these photos. Like next to Gein's tapes? Maybe. Probably, probably the same. That's All a good point. Closet. Probably the same guy. <laughs> so these photos are out there now online, as you can see all these guys out in the snow. You know, uh, they all have their little fedoras on and they're freezing cold and they're digging up this woman's body. And they have, you know, there's coffee right inside of the, in front of the police car standing on the, on the running board. Everybody's looking at him. They have close-ups of, of her body parts, photos of it. Um, man. You know, I, I say how, how morbid these people are that went to look at it, and here I am looking at it online, 
right now. It's just it, there's something about this stuff that that kind of intrigues us. Intrigues us. If right? nothing else, we feel better about ourselves, no matter how bad we've yeah. been. Now, coffee would eventually cop to the fact, obviously, that that the murder was intentional, as Mickey had already mentioned. And he cashed her bonds. He cashed five thousand well, dollars. Of course. On her bonds. I mean, he had you know. his priorities. But again, the the main reason was he didn't want his family to find out that he was having an affair. Well, he, was, right? he was trying to be... had nothing to do with the five thousand dollars. And and he was he was protecting his family. He didn't want her to find out he was a, a you know being unfaithful, right? A bigamist. Now, as as also as Mickey said before, he tried to say he was insane, yeah. and he said he always feared insanity. And in 1902, while living in Edgerton, he suffered a quote blank period unquote which he attributed to a bursted blood vessel, and he said when he committed the murders, he was in, quote, kind of this kind of space, period, unquote. And again, he kind of basing it on the fact that his father had spent some time in an insane asylum. His father died in an insane asylum. Right. So, you know, so it's in his genes. <laughs> yeah. So blame your mentally ill father about what you Why you're a did. murder and bigamist. And it turns out he was examined by numerous alienists, which back then was the archaic term used to describe what psychiatrists would now be called today. Numerous alienists found him to be perfectly sane, so find another reason there, buddy. So he's sentenced to life in prison, obviously. He'd be taken to prison uh, on February 6th, 1927, which is the very same day that Hattie Hales was actually reinterred in her hometown cemetery in Elroy. Body once again brought all back together. Same plot as her parents, Leander and Sarah Sherman. William Noah Coffey formally arraigned on charges of first-degree murder and also forgery and bigamy, sentenced to life, as he said, in Wapon State Prison. This occurred in a Lancaster, Wisconsin cigar store owned by local justice of the peace because he said he was too busy waiting on customers to go to the courthouse. Quote, the tobacco trade was interrupted. Then someone asked for 15 cents worth of fine cut and the arraignment was over, unquote. So they, they knew right away. I mean, it didn't take long to to get this sentence going. And on February 6, 1927, 16 days after his arrest, Coffey entered Wapon Prison with Bible in hand. Believed he'd already been forgiven for his sins. William Noah Coffey died in the Wapon State Prison, never granted parole. Originally buried on prison grounds, remains were moved to Calvary Cemetery in Wapon, Wisconsin in 1965. Alberta Coffey had divorced him and disowned his memory even before the final confession in 1927. After the divorce was finalized, all of them began using Alberta's maiden name, Winnick. Alberta and her two daughters, Alberta and Miriam, immediately moved to Chicago in 1940. She moved in with son Douglas, his first wife, and their children living in Mamaroneck, New York. Later on, she moved to Rancho Palos Verdes, California, to be near her youngest daughter, Miriam. On January 21st, 1960, she died and was buried in Green Hills Memorial Park in Rancho Palos Verdes. Son Douglas died in 1999. Eldest daughter, Alberta, died in 2006, and youngest Miriam died in 1978. So clearly this was a big story around the state when it happened, and the nation. And it really kind of restarted, at this time, the discussion of capital punishment in Wisconsin. And from the St. Paul Dispatch, I just want to read a little bit. There was an article in there on February 5th, 1927. It's called Mercy and the Merciless. And it says, quote, The atrocious crime of which William N. Coffey has confessed suggests one obvious question. What could have prevented the murder of Mrs. Hales? Of course, nothing now can erase the bloody killing from Wisconsin criminal records. It is too late to talk of protection for Mrs. Hales. But this case like every other murder, is not merely a matter for momentary regret and dismay. 
It is an instance in which the means of assuring the safety of innocent people have failed. It is an example of the failure of the social preventatives of violence to prevent. While the failure remains unexplained and the cause of it goes unremedied, the case excites a feeling of public insecurity which grows as tragedies like it are multiplied. What was Mr. Coffey willing to pay in the event his efforts to conceal the murder failed? The answer to the question is he was willing to go to jail. Death for the unwanted wife taken in bigamy, and at the worst, jail for Mr. Coffey. Coffey accepted the risk of jail, a one-sided bargain. Regrettable though it may be, there are men of Coffey's stamp, and there is only one argument that carries any weight with them. They themselves are merciless. To extend mercy to them is merely to pronounce a death sentence upon any innocents who happen to stand in their way. Wisconsin law, like Minnesota's, carries this guarantee of mercy to the merciless. While the human race continues to be cursed with the presence of such men as coffee, and while the law continues to assure them immunity from the death penalty, such outrages happen and may be expected to happen with the frightful regularity which has made this the most murderous of all the nations of the earth. Unquote. That was written a hundred years ago. And it's only gotten worse. That could be written today. That could have been written this very fucking morning. And there's there's a lot more of us now, which means there's more people doing this shit. Right. And we're in an we're in an age now where we're putting so much We're sensationalizing these horrible acts where they're almost heroes. Right. We're prioritizing the rights of the offenders. Right. We're in an age now of cashless bail. They uh, soup it up in nice language like uh, prison reform. Violent crime is up in this nation tenfold. Well, and like you say, some of it has to do with the fact that they're almost heroes. I mean, what are we, we're talking more about these guys who do these horrific things and these guys are not necessarily right in the head. So they think I'm going to be famous. I'm going to be a legend. I'm going to be, you know, someone, a part of history. Right. And it's okay to talk about it, but what are we doing about it? Right. Our justice system is not doing anything about it. We're letting these people walk right. and we talk about it. You know, we, t- we talked about it in, in Ed Edwards' case. We talked about it in Buford Sinet's case. There's all kinds of signs with these people. And again, this guy was, was questioned and is suspected in many more murders throughout the country. He never copped to any of them. But he's never been proven to be he's guilty. He's never proven to be guilty of what any of them. What does many mean? Do you have like over 10? Probably over 10. Yeah. Now that doesn't say he did them, obviously. Right. But, he, when, but when, the fact that he's linked to How many to people him? do this? Right. Right. And it just, what what rings in my head is why why does someone, like you said, it seemed like he had a normal life. It turns out he really didn't. He was doing things, already showing signs of being whatever he is, whether he's a psychopath or just, but that's kind of where I'm going with this. Why do some people go haywire, which is what he did? Was he bored with his original life? Did he just need some so-called excitement? Why couldn't he just get divorced and, and not have put his family and children through this? He obviously didn't care about him. Was he just too self-absorbed to even consider any of that or too resentful of all of them for having, you know, changed his life, even though he really never saw him? I mean, they, were they just a cover-up? Why did he have to have this family in the first place? Just I That's mean, exactly what they were. They were his, his disguise. Facade. Yeah. Just yeah. because... So, I mean, this does beg the question. He must have been, you got to figure he was some kind of serial killer. He's always gone on business trips and always had an alibi. So in his mind, anyway, that he could lie about. In in newspapers, it talked about his many affairs with women. And people knew this. People in his Bible studies knew he was, 
having numerous affairs, right? But because he had a Bible with him, it was fine. Right. And this is the only one he was worried about getting back to his family? Yeah, that's... So he dismembers her? Well, that's what she gets. You know, there's there's very likely more victims of Mr. Coffee here. Maybe we'll never... And unfortunately, like you're out. saying, we never... Well, I mean, maybe with DNA now, these cases are finally starting to be solved, but they're also getting to the point where the evidence, any evidence they have is getting to be so, you know, rotted away or just eroded that they maybe will never. And who knows, like you said, he might've killed over 10, 20 different people. You gotta, you gotta almost jump to that conclusion just based on what we just talked about. I mean, you know, one woman made him go this haywire or he'd been doing it a bunch before and he thought this is the one that's going to get back to me because he married her. And in this, this, um, this article that I just read about the death penalty, it's it's basically saying there was no deterrent there for him. He he was he was okay to go to jail, and he was really— He just didn't want to be capitally punished. Right. That's why he, he was adamant that it was in Wisconsin. I'm okay with the trade-off of going to jail for the rest of my life for killing this woman. And we're seeing this—there's no deterrent anymore to violent crime, especially when we're talking about today— this article is warning us a hundred years ago right. about how how we're trending in the wrong direction, and we're still heading in that direction now. I don't want to sit here and, and sound like I'm advocating for the death penalty. I'm not. I'm not. You know, other states have their own say in that. A better way, though. Uh, but there's, of course, there's got to be a better way of how we deter violent criminals and how we protect our own citizens. Because what we're doing now, even from a hundred years ago, we're trending the wrong way. And the prisons are over full. So, I mean, that's part of the equation, obviously. I mean, and I like you say, I think this is a big part of the foundation of why a democracy or why any government or civilization fails because you don't know how to handle the bad people. Politics, as always, mucks it up. It doesn't fix the problem. It grays it. It makes it worse. And that's what we're dealing with today. And kind of what I alluded to is like, was he so bored that... It's almost like he had this plan. Maybe I'll just go live in prison for a while. I'll have some structure. I'll have, you know, and maybe living there isn't bad enough that it stops a guy like this from doing it. It's like he accepted that that was going to happen from the get-go, knowing he'd get caught. But he, he'd he prefer that to having his family in the business life that he'd had. Right. And, and w- That's sad. It's, it's again, it's it's the, the, the main part of this article was to say that we're not protecting civilization here. We're not protecting the innocent. We're protecting the criminals. We're protecting the criminals. And that's not really a society that is long for this world. Amen, brother. <laughs>